Check out award-winning Johnson & Boone Solicitor's unique product, Legal Guard. Ideal for businesses and individuals, Legal Guard ensures you get the legal help you need when you need it. Packages start from just £24 a month and include free expert advice, access to a library of legal documents, as well as exclusive discounts on a range of services. For more information, visit johnsonandboone.co.uk forward slash legal guard and quote the code FITCHESH. You're listening to Johnson & Boone Solicitors Podcast exclusively on the Pod Station. Welcome everyone to episode 20 of the Johnson & Boone Podcast. My name is Mark. Joining me again for the second week. Clearly has nothing better to do. It is uh, Rob Boone from Johnson & Boone. How are you doing, Rob? Hey, Mark. Yeah, good to speak to you. How are you? I'm not too bad at all. Uh, so, for, if this is your first podcast, then uh, where have you been? Uh, but in the event that you've stumbled across it or you've decided to check us out, the idea of these shows are that each week we will pick a topic that falls within the remit of the expertise of the Johnson & Boone team, and we'll discuss it in a bit more detail, give people some tips on what they can do to perhaps avoid problems arising or give them some advice if there are problems which have arisen, where they can go, what they can do to perhaps try and resolve the issue. And failing that, they can obviously come and get some help from the professionals. Uh, there are 19 other episodes which you can find at the Johnson & Boone website. That's johnsonandboone.co.uk. Go to the podcast tab. You'll find all of them there. Um, if you click into one of the shows, you'll actually find links to all the major podcast platforms. If you subscribe then every time the latest show is published, it will automatically download into the onto the device that you use to listen to the show. It is that simple. Uh, you can also download the mobile app. Uh, it's available for free on both Android and app stores. So go on there and listen to it. And actually, there's a whole host of other things on there. So uh, what we've got, Rob, we've got uh, you can book appointments with the team. Yeah, you can book appointments with the team. You can look at any articles, etc. You can access uh, Legal Guard if you're one of our Legal Guard members. Um, but the appointment is is one of the best things that allows you to go straight into the diary of any of our solicitors by subject area, so you know you're seeing the right person, uh, and book straight into their diary so you haven't got to call the office. Absolutely. You can listen to all the podcast episodes. There's a tab there. And uh, Rob just mentioned it then. We're going to do a, an episode on it very soon about Legal Guard. Uh, check out the information on it on the app it's or on the website for that matter it's a, a fantastic product for individuals and businesses it's it's an extremely affordable and proactive way to manage your affairs uh, so what without further ado shall we get on to the topic we're going to be covering today rob what it what is it you left us in suspense last episode so i'm with bated breath waiting for <laughs> you to announce it this week, Mark, we're going to talk about uh, professional negligence, um, how it arises um, and the different ways in which uh, a claim is able to be brought. Okay. People probably will have heard that phrase before, but might not be familiar with what it actually means. So I guess 
let's start with the basic question of what is professional negligence? Yeah, sure. So professional negligence occurs where a professional advisor, so for example, a solicitor, an accountant, someone like that, fails to perform their responsibilities to the required standard of a reasonably competent person in their profession. So again, sticking with the same example, let's say somebody instructs a solicitor in relation to an injury claim. Um, they've had an accident, they've sustained injuries. That solicitor um, will be judged on the standard of a reasonably competent solicitor in that field of specialism. So it wouldn't be a defense for them to say, usually I don't do this type of work. You're assumed to be to be competent in what you're doing. Um, now, is there a difference between being professionally negligent and just offering a bad service? Because I suppose there's a bit of a gray area there between people not returning your calls, which possibly falls into the remit of bad service and failing to give some proper advice that results in a, a different outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we're talking about professional negligence and um, a professional negligence action that, that could be brought, we're not talking about sort of poor service in which maybe there's been a lack of communication or the progress in a matter is slow. Um, that wouldn't meet the standard that would be required. Um, in order for a, a claim to be brought, the standards have to fall below what would be reasonably expected of a reasonably competent person. And so you're talking about mistakes or errors that give rise to a loss, as opposed to what you're talking about here, which is a, a complaint. You mentioned before an example of someone's had an accident, they've been injured and they've had to go to a solicitor some, some advice. Have we got some other examples perhaps that we can use which might give people a, a slightly wider idea beyond something something that perhaps they're more familiar with? Yeah, of course. Uh, the solicitor example was just one that, that springs to mind, obviously, because we're solicitors. Um, professional negligence actions are brought against lots of different types of professionals. So you could um, have a situation in which an accountant has failed to correctly advise in relation to tax. Um, it might be that a financial advisor has recommended a mortgage which was unsuitable. Uh, or you might have a surveyor who was instructed to uh, perform a structural survey but they didn't spot any of the structural errors in a property. Um, and, and as a result, um, their client has sustained a loss. So what is the laws that govern these types of cases? What, what is it that you have to prove? What distinguishes between the, you didn't return my phone call, you're rubbish, to you didn't properly advise me on what my tax liabilities are and now I've either overpaid or underpaid or I've got some... Um, legal issues off the back of that? Yeah, it, it's fairly complicated. Um, in in simple terms, because we always only provide an overview in, in these um, podcasts, it's first worth noting that there has to be a duty of care. So your starting point is, has the professional that you are looking to pursue got a duty of care for you? And that can be in tort or in contract or both. So uh, the first thing that a potential um, a party would have to show was, was that there is a duty of care owed by the professional. The second thing is that they need to show that the professional has breached the duty of care and that's where we're referring back to the standard of a, a reasonably competent professional in that field. And then finally, they have to show that there's a direct loss as a result of the poor advice. 
you mentioned there about uh, tort. Somebody out there is probably wondering whether you're talking about one with apples in that you put cream over the top. Um, you, the two relationships you described were contractual, which probably is quite straightforward. There's a piece of paper that sets out what your roles, what your responsibilities are, and if you don't do those, then there is potentially a, a, a claim. Uh, with tort, what, what do you mean by that? Because that's a phrase that probably some people might be unfamiliar with. Yeah, so in essence, what we're saying is it can arise in two ways. So under contract, it can be specifically set out in a contract what is expected by parties, um, and they can have specific contractual requirements that if they don't fulfill, they can be negligent because they haven't. And if we can just use, again, the example of a solicitor, that would be what is set out within your retainer. So we will do this work, and if we don't do that work, um, then we could potentially be negligent because you think we have. When we're talking about a tort, that's how it just arises in law. So it, we're going back to this, the breach of duty and the reasonable, the reasonably competent professional. So it's that standard really that arises from tort. And whether there's a fixed a contract in place or not, that, that helps in terms of that definition, you'd always revert back to the reasonably competent professional. Now, actually, we've probably got quite a nice example to explain that um, because we were we were joking before we came on air um, about an example of, of sort of a, a common law tortious relationship. And I, I jokingly said, well, if if a, a friend asks a mate in the pub over a pint um, a legal question because that person is a solicitor, there's obviously no contractual relationship necessarily. Um, but there might become a, 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 well, you quite rightly pointed out that there might then become a, a common law duty of care because if that person is asking that solicitor a question because it's a solicitor uh, and that solicitor then gives wrong advice that they go away and act upon and that creates a worse situation, there might be, I mean, it'd be a very tenuous claim, I have to say, but there might be scope for a professional negligence claim, even though they were meeting in the dog and duck for a quick pint. Um... Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why with most professionals and, and certainly with the likes of solicitors, accountants, tax advisors, the reason why that there's always a retainer that sets out specifically what is going to be done is because if you don't set out specifically what you're going to do, it might be assumed that you're doing other things and it might be assumed that you're going to advise on points in your professional capacity that you've got no intention of because you're not instructed to do so. Um, it's a similar situation, I suppose, if, if in, in terms of what you're saying, albeit, yeah, it would be a, a fairly tenuous claim. When you're advising, if you're advising in your professional capacity and somebody places reliance upon that, it's debatable as to whether there would be a claim. What would be up for debate there would be whether that person had established a duty of care. So was you intending for there to be a duty of care if you're only advising your friend in the pub? And did they reasonably expect that you were taking on that duty? Which is why many, many, many years ago, we decided we wouldn't give people advice over the pint in the pub, isn't it, Rob? Absolutely. <laughs> is there a time restriction on doing this? I mean, how far back can you go? There may be some people who think, Oh, I I, did, I had an interaction with somebody many years ago. Um, does that mean I've got a claim? But I, how far back can you go, really? Generally speaking, the limitation is six years. Um, 
for anything in relation to um, a professional negligence matter um, that is is set out by the Limitation Act. Um, but the six year period does start from the date that the from the date of the cause of action. Right, cause of action. So, what do we mean by cause of action? Because if you're the victim in this situation, you might not know that something has gone wrong. If if this is a, a professional doing a very specialised task, the chances are that they're doing that because you don't understand and know what it is or how to do it or that it needs doing, and that's why you're using their services. So does the six years start from when they create that that error, that failing, and at what point are you supposed to become aware of that for the clock to be ticking? You're right to uh, and delve a little bit deeper on this point, and, and this is something we need to talk around a little bit. So in contract, the cause of action occurs as soon as the contract is breached, and that's irrespective of when damages are sustained. Um, so if we go back to the solicitor example, um, if a solicitor makes an error in a contract when you exchange a contract to buy a house, it will be the date of the exchange of contracts, which is the cause of action. In tort, the cause of action occurs when all elements are present. And if you remember those elements are, there's a duty of care, there's a breach of that duty, and then there's a loss, so there's damage. The difficulty here is that in some situations, the cause of action only occurs when the claimant sustains the damage, um, which may or may not be at the same time as the breach of duty, and therefore it can be quite difficult to work out. So go back to the accountant example and the tax. It might be that you filed some tax returns five years ago that were wrong based upon either the accountant's work or advice, and it's only sort of three, four, five years down the line that HMRC pick it up just possibly even by bad luck um, and act upon it, issue fines for late payments or even bring a, a, an action against you for for misleading or misrepresentation of some description. Does that mean that you've got, you've if, if you say three, four years down the line, does that mean you've only got two years to bring a claim against the accountant or is it only at that point that you become aware that something went wrong four years ago that it that six-year clock starts? Again, yeah, it's a very live point. So sometimes the claimant might be unaware that they've suffered damage until after even the, the six-year period has expired. Um, to address this problem, there is a provision within the Limitation Act that provides a secondary limitation period, and this allows a claim to be brought within three years of the date that the claimant's had knowledge of the negligence. Um, and that knowledge could be actual knowledge, i.e. they specifically knew, or it could be constructive, and constructive knowledge is they reasonably ought to have known. I mean, if you've ever done, if you've ever worked in this industry and you've ever done an application that relates to limitation, you will understand very quickly how complicated an issue this is and in how much depth and particularly how relevant each individual circumstance is to determining whether or not there is a, uh, a three-year, six-year, when it expired, when it started, etc. So I suspect what we're ultimately saying here is if you think you may have some claim of that description, just get in touch with somebody and ask that question because you guys can then go away and 
do some investigating and at least give them some clarity on it. Yeah, the I, I mean, the only time that it becomes a bit pointless is there is a long stop date. So um, when there's discovery of a loss um, that was incurred as the result of the negligence of a professional that was more than 15 years ago, um, that's definitely out. You won't be able to make a claim. Up until that point, as long as you've only recently had knowledge of it, i.e. within the last sort of few years, it might be that we can still help you. So if in doubt, ask the question uh, and we can perform an assessment of that for you. Is there a process that you've got to follow with these types of cases? Um, do, you, do you have to contact the person who's caused the the issue and let them know in advance? Do you come to somebody like yourself first and get some advice? Do you have to submit complaints or letters anywhere? It's always worth getting advice from a solicitor straight away. Um, there is a professional negligence pre-action protocol that applies to claims against professionals such as solicitors, barristers, accountants, tax advisors and the like. Um, there's a different pre-action protocol that exists for claims against uh, professionals such as architects, engineers and quantity surveyors. The primary purpose of the protocols is to encourage and, and assist the parties to resolve the dispute without any court involvement. Um, but they do need to be followed properly. Um, and if you don't follow them properly, it can be a problem later on. So you should always get advice right from the outset. We say this quite regularly whenever we've talked about any sort of court proceedings, we make reference to these protocols and, and the courts have introduced these deliberately to try and reduce the number of cases that actually go to court to only be in those where there is either something too complicated to agree or there are positions that the parties have reached which you're never going to agree in a million years but you still have had to have done a number of things to at least have made a serious attempt yeah absolutely um the the whole point of all the pre-action protocols being in place is to reduce the amount of litigation and um starting proceedings should always be a, a last resort and even when you've started proceedings that shouldn't mean that any negotiations should stop at that point um, if you happen to reach trial, then it should be that it's either a case that there is a point of law that needs to be decided that the parties can't agree on, uh, or failing that, really, it's a it's a failed negotiation. Now, quite often when we do these shows, we do sort of caveat this with, you can try and do some of this yourself, um, but it's always better to get some help. For me personally... I feel a little bit reluctant in even suggesting that in these kind of cases because they are quite technical and quite complicated. Certainly the burden of what you've got to prove is a lot higher than what you might have to do to Joe Bloggs on the street. So to give an example, I mean, do you want to explain to people what, what kind of things have to go in the letter of claim alone just to set out your case from the outset, never mind all the stuff that comes after that? Yeah, of course. So within the, um, and we're talking about the, the pre-action protocol here that exists for professional negligence against parties such as solicitors, barristers, or accountants, because it's just for illustrative purposes. Within the letter of claim, there should be um, a, a chronological summary of the facts that relate to the dispute. You need to disclose any key documents that are within your possession at that stage. You need to confirm whether or not you've appointed or intend to appoint an expert, which obviously means you need to understand whether you're going to do that 
yes or no at that stage. You need to set out an explanation as to the legal arguments that you're going to be relying upon. And then you need to confirm the financial loss and how it's calculated. And if you haven't been able to calculate it at that stage, you need to set out why. And uh, it, it might be, for example, if we go back again, we keep using the same example, but it, it's a good one. Someone sustained injury, perhaps. Solicitors dealt with the case for them. Maybe they didn't quite understand the severity of the injuries. Maybe there was an uninvestigated head injury or something, which has become a problem later on. Um, at the point of sending the letter of claim, you might not actually know the full extent of the loss because you haven't yet gone and got the neurological evidence that perhaps the first solicitor should have got. And you will be doing that, but you might not quite be at that stage. You'd have to set all out within your letter of claim what you intended to do and why you intended to do it in order to allow them to respond. And bearing in mind this case that you might be pursuing might be against solicitors or barristers whose sole job is to deal with situations like this. Doing it yourself is is quite a, a, a bold step to take, isn't it? Because there's an awful lot you won't know that they will know. And actually, that might be to your disadvantage because the stuff that they know that you don't know might actually be the key to you winning your case. Yeah, stick with the same example again. And again, it's just because it's a, it's a straightforward one. But if you knew more than they did in the first place, you perhaps wouldn't have settled your claim in that situation. So the very situation that you found yourself in is because you're relying upon their professional knowledge, which you concede when you instruct them and rely on their advice is, is more than you know about the subject. So for you to then take them on and try to criticise what they've done wrong would be nigh on impossible without without having advice from someone who is able to point out the errors and not only point out the errors, but point out how they can perhaps be rectified. Um, the idea of these claims is to put you in the position that you should have been in. And in order to know the position you should have been in, there might be all sorts of expert evidence that you also need to obtain. So you're almost, I mean, certainly with the example you've given there, which is a sort of a personal injury situation, you're almost running two cases under one, aren't you? You're running the professional negligence element that you did this wrong, but then you also have to run a personal injury case because you've essentially got to prove the injuries that were missed off the list that you're now claiming for. And once you prove the personal injury bit, you go back to say, well, hang on a minute, I proved that now, so this is why you've got it wrong. Juggling those two things is difficult enough when you're a, a professional trying to do it yourself. Sounds tough to say the least. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult. And, and it's very difficult because not only wouldn't they be expected to know what they should do as, as an individual, but also when you present any arguments, even if you do have an idea, you're going to be told you're wrong by the solicitor. And then if you are going to engage with the court process or if you're going to engage with any type of mediation or ADR or anything at all, you don't have anyone behind you to tell you that you're right. Or if you're wrong and actually what they've done doesn't meet the standard for negligence, you might not be able to distance yourself from the situation enough to accept that. So it's important, you know, at an early stage that you do get advice, um, apart from anything else, just to stop you from um, running down the wrong road. And there are and there are usually insurers involved in this situation, aren't they? I mean, you Johnson and Boone as solicitors have professional indemnity insurance, and it's a requirement that is across the board for these types of professionals. 
It is. Nobody likes the idea that you may have to go back and sue uh, or make a claim against a professional that you once instructed. And I don't think anybody intends that when they first instruct somebody. Um, but there is professional indemnity insurance in place because professionals, accountants, solicitors, architects are human beings. They can make mistakes. They can get things wrong. But if their client has sustained a loss off the back of that, then they should also be able to recover and put themselves back in the position that they should be in had the solicitor got it right. So the whole point of professional indemnity insurance is to step in and to pay that bill at that stage. Um, so most professions have to have it. Certainly solicitors have to have it and they have to have a, a reasonably high level as well. Um, and it's all, it's all just there, both to protect the firm themselves, but also to protect their clients. You mentioned that litigation, the court process, the court proceedings should be a last resort. What are the other options that you can try and exhaust before you get to that stage then? Within the protocols, it's um, strongly recommended that the parties enter into negotiations. Um, they should consider all types of alternative dispute resolution. Often mediation would be appropriate uh, or some sort of um, adjudication or arbitration. It might be that an early neutral evaluation is needed by a third party. Um, and there are some ombudsman schemes as well, um, up to certain values and for certain types. Uh, but they can get involved in, and try and encourage a settlement. The, the whole process really is to try and avoid the need for litigation. Now, that sounds like a long, drawn-out process. Often, it becomes really clear quite quickly whether a settlement is going to be um, possible, um, and you'll whiz through a lot of that reasonably quickly in terms of time. But the parties are encouraged to try and settle the claim before they move anywhere near court. And the financial costs of using these options first is 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 just a million miles away from what it would ultimately cost you if you have to start going down the the court process. Yeah, when you instruct a, a solicitor to assist you with these cases, the solicitor should be able to enter into meaningful negotiations anyway, um, just on an informal basis or maybe without a prejudice basis and without incurring much cost at all you should be able to get an idea as to whether the case is capable of settlement or it might just be the breach itself is not accepted. And if the breach itself is not accepted, then obviously that isn't something that is, is easily settleable and that might require intervention from the court. But if we're just talking about the financial value, that is something that the parties should be able to settle without uh, having to bother the court. And how do you value these cases? The aim of damages uh, for professional negligence is to put the claimant back into the position that it would have been in had it not been for the negligence. Um, so this, again, is, is another complex area. Um, often expert evidence is required. So we go back again to the same um, example, just for completeness, that we've, we've used throughout an undersettled personal injury claim. So you have someone who... Maybe they had soft tissue injuries and the claim was settled on the basis of soft tissue injuries, but there was also an uninvestigated head injury. In order to work out what the loss is and how much they should have got for the claim, you need to understand the full nature and extent of the injury. And the only way to understand the full nature and extent of the injury is to get the correct medical evidence now. So in order to value the claim, you'd have to do everything that would have been done first time round. 
and, and the expert evidence would all have to be obtained. So in, in simple terms, you're trying to put the claimants in the situation they would have been in had it been done properly in the first place. Um, but it is much more complicated than that in reality. Oh, absolutely. To give an example, I guess, for medical negligence cases, one doctor says one thing, you might think it's easy enough just to go away and get another doctor to say something different. But actually, if you asked a third doctor, would that third doctor come up with a third scenario or would they agree with the first one? And if you went to a fourth one, would that agree with the second one? In which case, you're still at a stalemate. You can, it, it's quite difficult, isn't it, to sometimes establish whether experts in the same field would agree that there has been so, so done something wrong. And if there has been done something wrong, what what they would have done differently to have avoided that happening to themselves? It is. And even once you've got that medical evidence, so if, if you take, for example, let's say somebody had an orthopedic injury, so there's a, a, a reasonably significant lower leg fracture, for example, and it was settled on the basis that it would be recovered in a couple of years, um, but the client was not maybe advised that they could or should wait for a final prognosis, it never did recover. So because it was settled on the basis that it would recover, no one has looked at maybe, for example, whether there would be arthritic change, whether in due course they'll be able to work in the same way that they've worked. And there's lots of special damages that might be missed out of that claim. So it might have been settled for, you know, maybe £15,000. But by the time you look at the, the future losses and the fact that maybe they stop work or they never make it back to work in the same capacity, maybe they need all sorts of treatment for life or medications for life. A case could be worth three, four, five, six times that. The, the complexity of someone trying to address this on their own is they might not even know what they could have claimed for if it was done right, what medical evidence they'd need, what discipline of medical expert they should go for. It, it, it really is quite complicated. So you, you're right, in, in many situations, we'll say to people, if you don't want to be represented, then whilst we would advise against that, um, you can get on with it yourself. This really does fit into one of those categories of you, you shouldn't really be trying this yourself. It's already gone wrong once, um, and, and this is your final bite of the cherry. So besides obviously giving you guys a call or dropping an email, what's the process for getting you to look at whether or not they've got a case? Okay, so the first thing to note is we, we do act on these cases on a no-win, no-fee. So it, it is something that um, people can explore without being worried about incurring legal fees. Um, we will need to um, we'll need to take instructions from you, usually over the phone, um, albeit we can do it face-to-face. And then once we've got instructions, we'll get you to sign an authority so as that we can obtain the file of papers from whichever professional you, you think it is has let you down. We'll then perform an assessment of those papers and we'll we'll go from there. In complex cases, uh, it might be that we arrange a conference either with a, a barrister um, or perhaps we'll get some input from another accountant, um, if it's an accountancy matter or a, a, another advisor of some sort, um, so that we can assess the merits of your case properly. And then provided that we're happy, um, we'll then reach the stage of starting the pre-action protocol and informing them with the letter of claim, and then we'll advise you in relation to any evidence that you need to put in place moving forward. So how can they get hold of you to make those inquiries? 
All of the usual ways. So they can simply call the office uh, 0151 637 2034. They can email info at uk. Um, they can leave us a message via the website, uh, johnsonandburn.co.uk. They could look us up on any of the social media platforms, uh, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, they could download our app and they could book an appointment straight into one of our diaries um, or they could contact us directly and all our email addresses are on the website uh, and they could just pick one of us and make contact. Brilliant. You've done my job for me there, Rob. You're a consummate pro. <laughs> so uh, that brings us, uh, as we always say, that's just a, a cursory glance at this topic. If you do want to know more, get in touch with the team. Um, if you've got any questions, send us a, an, an email and, and ask a question using the same contact information that Rob's just suggested there. Uh, we obviously are also keen for suggestions on topics that people might want us to cover. Uh, what else? Uh, five-star reviews. We love a good five-star review. We haven't had a five-star review yet. We don't think we've had any reviews yet, so that would be really, really good. If you go on, on whichever the platforms you use, whether it be Apple or Google or Spotify, uh, they all have a, a rating system. Please just take a, a, a quick second. It really, really does make a difference because uh, the more ratings we get, the more exposure we have to uh, a wider audience, which is fantastic. Uh, so, Rob, uh, any ideas on what we're doing next week? Or have we got another mystery bag? No, I think we've I think we've threatened it for long enough now. So we'll do a special on our Legal Guard um, product and we'll explain that in a bit more detail, how some of our current clients are using it, the types of savings they can make, um, and how people can get involved. Well worth listening to that, guys. It is a unique offering from a firm of solicitors, so check that out next week. Rob, thank you very much for your time, as always. Thanks very much, Mark. And we'll catch you next time, guys. See you now. Cheers, thanks. Get social at Johnson & Boone on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter.